At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be starting a new series this morning that we're calling Defeating Death, Victory Crowned at Great Cost. And this series is going to look more in depth at three chapters of God's Word, Matthew 26, 27, and 28. And over the next 10 Sundays, we're we're going to be looking at those three chapters to see what they tell us about how God has defeated death through Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and how God has made a way for you and I to defeat death as well. Now, these events in Matthew 26, 27, and 28 deal with the last couple of days in Jesus's earthly life. From when he goes to the cross all the way through to his resurrection. Now, when we think about those events and that we're going to spend 10 Sundays in a series on it, you might be thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, I have heard that story before. This is a very familiar section of Scripture. Are we really going to take 10 Sundays to go through this? Sometimes we're so familiar with it that we we think that we might be able to summarize it and move through it at a faster pace. As a matter of fact, you might even be thinking, why is it when I go to church that we always sing these songs about Jesus' death and his resurrection? Why is it that so many of our songs are connected to that? I mean, at Christmas, we have a few songs that we call Christmas carols, but the rest of the year, we sing Easter songs. Why is it that we are so focused on this particular event, and is that appropriate? Well, friends, I want us to think for just a moment about how it is appropriate. As a matter of fact, I would argue, and I think it it can be definitively said, that the most significant events in all of human history happened over this two-day period between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that very first year. The most significant things that have ever happened, happened there. And that focus on those events is something that is also mirrored inside of God's Word. The things that God most wants us to know, he highlights the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We see that in the gospel accounts. How many gospels are there? Four, right? I gave you a hint. Four. There are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four accounts talk about Jesus' life. And inside of those four accounts of Jesus' life, there is a disproportionate amount of space given to the last week in Jesus' life. Think about this. In Matthew's gospel, there are 28 chapters. Eight of those chapters, or 28%, focus on the last week of Jesus' life. In Mark's gospel, six of his 16 chapters, or 38%, focus on the last week of Jesus' life. In Luke's gospel, six of those 24 chapters, or 25%, focus on the last week of the life of Jesus. In John's gospel, a whopping 10 of his 21 chapters, or 48%, focus on the last week of Jesus' life. The Apostle Paul would even go so far as to say in his ministry in Corinth that he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the message that he preached, and that's the message that we preach. And so when we think about the appropriateness for us to spend the next 10 Sundays to look at these events, I think it's absolutely appropriate. 
As a matter of fact, it might not be enough. Friends, as we come to this very precious section of God's Word, let's not allow our familiarity with it to cause us to miss the grace and the wonder and the love of God in it all, who makes a way through Jesus' death and resurrection to defeat death and to extend an opportunity for you and I to share in that victory as well. This morning, we're going to kick off this series by looking at Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 14 through 16. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to spend the rest of our time in these eight verses. And hopefully, as we look at these eight verses, we'll begin to set a foundation for our study about how Jesus defeated death for you and for me. We'll pick it up in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people." Then in verse 14, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, friends, in these few verses today, I want us to see three different things that will help us understand a little bit more about how Jesus defeated death and God's heart for you and for me. The first thing I want us to see is this, the cross before the kingdom, the cross before the kingdom. Now, when I say that, it's helpful for us once again to remember the context. Obviously, the context of this is that Jesus offers these words in Matthew 26 on the Wednesday before Good Friday, just a couple of days before he goes to the cross, Jesus makes these statements. So that's what's getting ready to happen. But what had just happened? If you've been with us at Wildwood over the last several weeks, you know that Jesus had just finished preaching a sermon to his disciples that answered their question. The question they had was, when will the kingdom come, Jesus? When will this age end? When will you come back to this earth and establish rule upon this earth, sitting upon a glorious throne in Jerusalem? When is that going to happen, Jesus? And Jesus' answer to them, we saw over the last six Sundays, was it's going to happen in a while. There are a number of things that still must transpire before I come and establish my kingdom. Now, he didn't give a specific number of years, but as we sit here today, it has been 2,000 years and counting since Jesus made the declaration that the future would still be kingdom. So it was at least 2,000 years away. But Jesus wanted his disciples to know that though that was some 2,000 years away, there was something that was going to happen in two days. And that thing that was going to happen in two days was that Jesus was going to go to the cross. We see this in verse 1 and 2, when Jesus says to them, in two days 
the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The cross would come soon. The kingdom would come later. Before the king would ever take the crown of gold, he would first take a crown of thorns. Now, when we talk about this, and we talk about crucifixion, we are so familiar with that word that it has lost some of its impact upon us. But when crucifixion was mentioned in the first century, it was not something that people would say lightly. It was a an event that everyone wanted to avoid. It was a particularly terrible form of capital punishment that the Romans had come up with, not only to kill their enemies, but also to humiliate and embarrass them and to torture them in such a public way that no one would ever question Rome because they did not want to ever be placed in that situation. Uh, The root idea of crucifixion is the same root from which we get the idea of excruciating. It was a terrible process. Professional executioners would take someone set for crucifixion, and they would beat them to within an inch of their life. And then they would strip them naked and march them out to a prominent location along a major road where they would nail them to two pieces of wood and lift them up so that everyone walking by could see and could mock the state that they were in. As they hung there on that cross, they would not die from the beating or from the blood, but they ultimately would die from asphyxiation, suffocating under the weight of their own bodies. This was the fate of crucifixion. And so Jesus says to his disciples, hey, you're asking me about the kingdom. 2,000 years from now, the kingdom is coming. But two days from now, this is what is headed for me. Not for someone, Jesus says, but for me. Not some time off in the distant future, but two days from now, Jesus says, I'm headed to the cross. Now, when Jesus says that to his disciples, they shouldn't have been surprised. And when we hear it, we shouldn't be surprised either because for the last three and a half years, we've been walking through Matthew's gospel and throughout Matthew's gospel again and again and again, Jesus predicted the cross in his future, not only his death, but also his resurrection. In Matthew 16, in Matthew 17, in Matthew 20, and then here in Matthew 26, Jesus again and again and again said to his disciples, I'm headed to the cross, I'm headed to the cross, I am headed to the cross. He knew what awaited him in Jerusalem, and he went there anyway. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you just to think about what if something really terrible was awaiting you back at your house this afternoon? What if you knew that someone would be there with a gun ready to to beat you and shoot you? You knew that was what was lying in front of you. Would you go home? No, you'd probably go out to lunch, right? You wouldn't move into that kind of a situation. And yet Jesus, knowing full well that the cross is what awaited him in Jerusalem, does not run over the hill of the Mount of Olives, running away from that kind of suffering. But instead, he walks directly into Jerusalem. 
Why? Why would Jesus do that? Knowing what was coming, why did he go there? Well, friends, the answer is simple, because of the love of God. Jesus loves you, and Jesus loves me. And because of that love, rather than fleeing over the hills, Jesus walked directly into Jerusalem, knowing that the cross was where he was headed. This idea of the love of God motivating him to that action is seen throughout the New Testament. One of the prominent places we see it is in John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Why did Jesus come? He came because God loves us, and God wanted to make a way for us to have eternal life. So why did he have to die? Well, Paul's letter to the Romans, we have laid out for us a number of different verses that articulate very well for us why Jesus had to die. It was the love of God that motivated him to come, but why was death what he had to do when he came? Well, Romans 3 lets us know that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the challenge to that, Romans 6.23 tells us, is that the wages of sin is death. Because we have sinned, a death is required. A separation from God is required. The wrath of God must be poured out upon sin. So where will it be poured? Will it be poured on us unto death or will it be poured on someone else? Because God loved us, he created an opportunity for that wrath to be poured on someone else, for that death to be experienced by someone else. And so Jesus came to die in our place. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love, his, his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Jesus move to the cross? He moved to the cross even knowing what was there because he loved us and he was making a way for us to be reconciled with the God who created us. He was making a way for us to have eternal life because of his love for us. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus gives somewhat of a mission statement for his life. Um, He didn't call it that, but I think it's a correct summary of what Jesus said. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man being the title that Jesus most often used of himself. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom. I came to offer my life as a substitute, as a payment, so that we would not have to die. That's what Jesus is offering to you, and that's what he is offering to me. And notice that he came a great distance in order to make that possible. How far did he come? Well, he came all the way from heaven, through the manger, through a 30-year life, through three years of public ministry. Jesus walked that entire path. He came all of that way because of his love for us and a desire for us to be connected to God forever. And when you think about somebody coming a great distance for you, uh, it, it makes you feel special for somebody to travel a distance, doesn't it? You know, just a few weeks ago, my, my son uh, plays seventh grade basketball at Alcott, and his grandparents came to see him play. That was pretty special, wasn't it, Josh? 
pretty cool to have your grandparents come. They're, they weren't just in the neighborhood. They had to intentionally come. They had to, they had to drive 160 miles. They had to pay a toll on the turnpike. They had to put, pay money to put gas in their car. They, they showed up. They, they, they paid for Kimberly and I to go to dinner with them. After we, we had, had dinner, we, we went to the game, and, and they bought the admission to the game at great cost, coming great distance. They came all of this way. And when you think of that distance and all that they had done in order to see this game, it's, a, it's unmistakable the love that they have for Josh. Now, some of you grandparents out there are going, we got to go see the grandkids, and we got to go tomorrow. Uh, but, but here's the thing. When you, when you think about that idea, think about what Jesus has done. He came a lot further than 160 miles. He paid a lot more than just for a meal and some, some tickets. He paid with his life. He came not to watch us and be entertained. He came knowing that the cross was lying in front of him. Friends, when you think of Jesus knowing that the cross is what lay in Jerusalem, it ought to just floor every one of us. Never let that flow past you. Never take that for granted. With awe and with wonder and with worship, let's remember he, knowing what lie ahead, moved forward nonetheless because of his love for you. Now, the first thing is, We need to remember that there was a cross before the kingdom. The second thing that we need to remember is this. Jesus' life would be given by him, not taken from him. His life would be given by him, not taken from him. Now, this is a theme throughout the Gospels, but it comes in great detail in these verses that we read earlier. But, but the idea that Jesus was giving his life, not having his life taken from him, is an idea that we see in John's gospel. Look at what Jesus said in John 10, 18. He says, no one takes it, here referring to his life, no one takes my life from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. From the time Jesus was born, there was a line of people that wanted to kill him. Do you realize that? When he was born, the Magi show up and they go to Jerusalem and they talk to Herod and they say, we want to find out where the Messiah is. Do you know where he is? And Herod consults with his, his friends and his leaders and they said, hey, he's probably down in Bethlehem. And so after they get that knowledge, Herod says what? Go to Bethlehem and kill all the baby boys. From his very early days, people wanted to kill him. And yet God provided a way. And he left With Mary and Joseph, he went to Egypt, he came back, he established his earthly ministry, and one day he's preaching in Nazareth, his hometown, and he says a few things that really irritate the locals, and they run him out of town, and they take him up to a precipice above the city, and they want to push him off to his death, and it says that Jesus just walked out among them. They don't know where he went, he just disappeared, they just, just, just left. And those accounts are repeated several other times in the New Testament. And what we see is that there were many that wanted to kill Jesus, but they were unsuccessful. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. Jesus was not a victim. He wasn't the victim of an evil plot. 
He didn't have his life taken from him by sinful people. But Jesus willingly, intentionally, with full understanding of what he was doing, laid his life down. And we see that in this passage. Now, he he laid his life down, this passage lets us know, at a specific time. There was a festival going on. What was it? The festival of the Passover. It was during the Passover that Jesus would offer his life. That was his plan. It was this particular Passover. Jesus was going to go to the cross on this particular day at this particular time during this particular festival. And that was not an accident. The Passover celebration was something that the people of Israel had celebrated all the way back since their exodus out of Egypt. When they left Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, and God, through a miraculous set of circumstances, provided for his people so that they might escape. And God gave them a celebration called the Passover so that they would always remember God's deliverance in the past and would always point their eyes towards his promised deliverance in the future. Now, one of the things they would do as a part of celebrating the Passover is they would sacrifice a lamb. They would take a lamb and they would sacrifice it. A reminder that all the way back in Egypt, that one of the plagues was going to lead to the death of the firstborn. But the death of the firstborn plague did not touch the homes that were marked by the blood of a lamb above the door and on the doorposts. And so they would offer this sacrifice of a lamb every year as a reminder of the need for God to pass over their sins as well when judgment would come. Now, this idea of the Passover lamb being sacrificed is a prominent theme among those that observed the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist was, would say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God. He's saying this of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He saw in Jesus the one who would ultimately be the sacrifice for our sins. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, moving towards the cross, choosing to offer his life as a sacrifice on that particular day, in that particular celebration, was a reminder that his death was not just a death taken by sinful men, but his death was a death for sinful men and women. He would offer his life intentionally and willingly. He would lay it down. He would give it away so that you and I might be forgiven because his death was in our place. So it was his plan that he would die at the Passover. But what was the plan of the religious leaders? We see that in verses 3 to 5. While Jesus is talking to the disciples, the scene cuts and it, it opens back up in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. It says the chief priests and the elders of the people, they gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. The, the one who was leading that convocation was Caiaphas, the high priest. Now in the Old Testament time, the appointment to high priest was a very important one, but it lasted a lifetime. The appointment of a high priest in Old Testament times, you were, you were appointed as high priest, and until you died, you held that office. But it was different in the time when Jesus was on the earth. 
Because when the Romans took over and were governing in that area, which was what was happening at the time of Jesus, the Romans said, we will allow you Jews to practice your religion, including worship in the temple, but with one caveat, we want to control who the high priest is. And so the Romans took what had been a, a lifetime appointment and they, they made it a one-year appointment so that they could control who was in power and they could guide the process. Most high priests in the Roman era would serve six months, 60 days, a year or two at the most. Caiaphas held that office for 18 years. 18 years he held that office. Now, what does that tell you about Caiaphas? If the Romans were appointing someone, and most didn't make it very long, but Caiaphas made it a long time, what does that tell you about Caiaphas in Rome? He was in cahoots with them. And Caiaphas's connection with Rome led to an incredible amount of wealth that came to him. How is Caiaphas's house described? A palace. It still stands today, friends. You can, you can see it if you went to Jerusalem. A majestic looking house. How is it that a priest could have a house so impressive? Well, we've seen in previous series as we've gone through Matthew, it's because they had developed a system that exploited the people in order to get the resources so that the priest could become very wealthy and the high priest the wealthiest of all. Because of this, Caiaphas saw in Jesus opposition to that plan. In other words, Jesus was a threat to Caiaphas's whole enterprise, his whole operation. If people followed Jesus, then Caiaphas would be out of a job, and that was not going to be tolerable for him. And so he began to work the system to eliminate Jesus. An interesting thing is said by Caiaphas about Jesus in John chapter 11, verse 50. Caiaphas here is talking, and at first glance, this, this looks like not too awful of a statement, but he says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas here, it's, he sounds very altruistic. In other words, Jesus is causing problems. If he continues, the whole nation will end up in trouble by Rome, and that's going to be a bad deal. And so we just need to kill Jesus so the nation can thrive. But really what Caiaphas was saying was this. I will do whatever it takes, Caiaphas is saying, so that Caiaphas personally can have life, even if it means the death of another. Contrast that, friends, with Jesus. Jesus, who said, I will do whatever it takes, including laying down my life and dying personally so that others might live. What a contrast. Caiaphas plots, plans, and schemes to eliminate Jesus, but he's a coward. He knows that Jesus needs to die, but he's afraid to do it at the time of the Passover when all these people are in town. I mean, think about it. The, the city of Jerusalem swelled five to ten times its normal size during the Passover. One to two million people in the city at that time. Lots of folks around. Many of them sympathizing with Jesus. Many of them have heard him preach, have seen him do miracles. And Caiaphas said, we can't get rid of him with all these people around. That would cause quite an uproar. And so let's wait until the festival is over. Caiaphas thought that he was sovereign. He thought that he had the ability to determine when Jesus would die. Caiaphas said, Jesus, you're going to die after the festival. He didn't say that to him, but that was his plan. And yet, when did Jesus die? During the festival. Who was sovereign in this situation? Caiaphas 
or Jesus? It's a real question. You can answer it. Jesus, right? Jesus was sovereign. His life was not taken from him by Caiaphas. He laid it down willingly. His life was not taken from him by Pilate. Think about this. Caiaphas did not have the ability to to exact the death penalty upon Jesus. He needed the help of the Romans. And so he called his buddy Pilate and he said, Pilate, we got to get rid of this guy. And he sent Jesus over there for death. But when Jesus is interacting with the Roman Pilate, this is what Jesus says to Pilate. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What Jesus was saying to Pilate was, hey, Pilate, Caiaphas thinks that you're sovereign over him. Guess what? I'm sovereign over you. Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was given by him. Now, what does that ultimately lead to for us? It leads, friends, you and I to an understanding that we are not connected to God by accident, but through a very intentional process, God set about a plan and executed it so that you and I might be connected to him forever. Sometimes we wonder, does God really want me? He does. He loves you. Instead of running over the other side of the mountain, he walked right into the hornet's nest because he wanted to make a way for you to be with him forever. If you have already trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, don't let that point fly by you. Be thankful. Have it drive you to worship and thankfulness and devotion to God. But if you have not yet trusted in Christ, then allow that truth and that knowledge that we've seen today to invite you to trust him. You're here today not because you've decided to come, but there's a God who is sovereign even over your schedule. You are here today. God is pursuing you, inviting you to trust in him that you might do so this morning. And just from where you sit, believe in the person of Jesus and what he has done for you, that you might have eternal life, even as John 3.16 promised. His life was given by him. It wasn't taken from him. Third thing I want us to see, though, is anchored in verses 14 through 16. And it's this. Value Jesus, no terrible trades. Value Jesus, no terrible trades. Now, I, I decided to include these three verses today because they, they help us understand how the timetable shifted. Now, we know it shifted because it was God's will and plan for Jesus to be offered up at the Passover, but how is it that it played out in human terms? Well, it played out in human terms because Judas got involved. Judas decided to go and partner with Caiaphas and the religious leaders to turn Jesus in so that they might arrest him and kill him. Now, you might be wondering, why did they need Judas at all? I mean, think about it. Jesus' ministry was extremely public. He had just talked in the temple squares. Why did they, why did they need someone to go turn Jesus in? Somebody that was in the city every day. Well, the reason why they, they needed Judas's help, and the reason why when Judas got involved, it was such a game changer for Caiaphas, was because they needed someone to take them to Jesus when he was away from the crowds. 
That's what Luke 22, 6 tells us. Judas could provide a service to Caiaphas. He could take them to Jesus when he wasn't around others. And the day before Motel 6, Jesus, when he was there for the Passover, was not staying at a certain spot, and they could track him through his credit card path. They needed a friend to take him there who knew where he slept, and Judas provided that service. So Judas says, I will turn Jesus over to you. What will you give me for it? What a crass thing to say. What will you give me to turn over my friend? And they said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. There's been a lot of debate over what that value of 30 pieces of silver was. I'll tell you, it wasn't enough. It would not have been enough. If it had been 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million pieces of silver, it would not have been enough, not for what Jesus came to do, not, not who he was. But he took 30 pieces of silver. That number is a significant number. In Exodus chapter 20, we find out that 30 pieces of silver was actually the price of a slave. If you had a slave and that slave was, uh, your neighbor had a slave and that slave was killed, killed by your ox, then the reparation that you must pay to your neighbor was 30 pieces of silver. It was the pi- price of a slave. That's what Judas took in order to turn over his friend. Friends, that is the definition of a terrible, terrible trade. Charles Spurgeon said this of that. He says, the amount agreed upon, 30 pieces of silver, was the price of a slave and showed how little value the chief priest set upon Jesus and also revealed the greed of Judas in selling his master for so small a sum. Yet many have sold Jesus for a less price than Judas received. A smile or a sneer has been sufficient to induce them to betray their Lord. Friends, not in necessarily as dramatic terms as we see happening in Matthew 26. We're often placed in a situation where we can trade our fidelity to Christ for a laugh. We can trade honoring and glorifying him for a relationship. We can trade honoring and glorifying him for a job. In all of those situations, it's a terrible trade. We have an opportunity with our lives to stay in the camp with Christ, to live our lives to lift him up, not to profit from him, not to cash that in in some way for a funny joke, but for us to to lift him up and honor him in all that we do. Friends, may may we value Jesus. When we remember who he is and what he has done, that he laid his down his life for us, that he loves us, when we remember that, friends, it's a game changer in terms of how we respond to him. When we value him correctly, We'll look at this next Sunday. But when we value him correctly, our response is not to cash in on our connection to him, but it's to stay with him and to honor him and to love him in return. Friends, will we respond that way to our Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to gather and to worship. Thank you for this, these truths that you have preserved for us from 2,000 years ago. 
the most significant set of days that the world has ever known. You, you recorded them for us so that we could read them today and reflect on them and remember who you are and what you've done. And I pray that, Father, each and every heart in this room, that we would be so appreciative for who you are, that we would value uh, Jesus correctly and we would stay with him. We would trust him for our eternity and for our every day. Father, because we have a need for you. We come to you now. We worship you. We lift your name up in Jesus' name. Amen.